You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Everything changes in a flash. That's the tagline from the 2008 movie, The Full Picture. In it, Mark's dysfunctional past threatens his current relationship, forcing him to confront the thing he fears most. I never told Erica about Dad. Today, a similar confrontation is playing out in financial markets. As the truth sinks in, an ever stronger volume of investment is being directed towards the sustainable economy. But there's a problem. So, how much does she know? She knows some things. Investors aren't getting the full picture. Please, just tell me something, anything, so so I don't feel like I'm meeting a total stranger. On today's program, how to reveal the full ESG picture. And we've tried through the guidance to um, highlight eight areas that an issuer can sort of focus on or questions they can ask themselves as they're trying to figure out what to uh, provide in their ESG disclosures. Coming up, the London Stock Exchange Group shows what good ESG reporting looks like. What made investor activism a hot strategy again? Activist Insights' Josh Black looks back to predict the future. There's a lot of optimism that tax reform, you know, repatriation of overseas capital, deregulation can help spur some of these industries that activists have been piling into recently to new and greater heights. That's coming up next, but first, this week's IR Update. Sherwin-Williams and Jack in the Box led the pack at this year's U.S. IR Magazine Awards. Each won three prizes, including the Grand Prix for Best Overall Investor Relations, in their category. Small-cap waste management firm Covanta picked up the final Best Overall Award. Visa's Jack Karski and Victoria Hyde-Dunn shared the prize for Best IR Officer at a Large Cap. Carol Duramo of Jack in the Box and Julie Tracy of Wright Medical Group were joint winners among the small and mid-caps. IR professionals say Donald Trump will weaken the global economy. An online survey of 100 visitors to IRmagazine.com finds exactly half think he will damage it. At the same time, and no surprise here, a strong 30% minority believe Trump's policies will lead to a stronger global economy. Finally, Institutional investors are still uppity. Now a $2 trillion investor coalition that includes Egon Asset Management, Aviva Investors and Collier Capital is trying to prod fast food restaurants away from routine overuse of antibiotics in their product. The group just published a report on corporate antibiotic policies in livestock, calling for greater restrictions across the restaurant food chain. In strictly monetary terms, some estimate antibiotics becoming useless would shear $100 trillion from global economic output. Hacktivist Insight's latest annual review is out. IR Magazine digital editor Ben Ashwell sat down with AI's Josh Black to get his take on past and prologue. 
Uh, I wonder if you could start by just telling us a little bit about Activist Insight and the uh, Activist Investing Annual Review that you recently produced. Yeah, sure. So we're a news and data service focused on activist investing, mm-hmm. really all around the world and all different types of activism. You know, we are primarily a data company, and so we uh, profile activist investors. But we also offer a news service, uh, a monthly magazine, a short database, and uh, every year we produce a kind of blockbuster report on what's happened over the past year in activism, what we can expect to see, uh, or at least what we think we can expect to see over the next kind of year and sure. beyond. Excellent. Well, you know, in, in, in the review that you recently produced, you wrote that 2016 was a disjointed year with mixed fortunes either side of the summer. How did last year start for activists and uh, what changed throughout the year? Well, last year started pretty badly for activists. Their mm-hmm. performance was you know, well known to have been poor in the first half of the year mm-hmm. and really was the kind of culmination of a few years of bad luck for them. They had piled into energy and then seen oil prices drop. They had uh, been invested in these kind of uh, mega mergers that then were blocked by antitrust authorities. And I think the last one was probably pharmaceuticals, which was an area that a lot of investors thought you know, was a real growth industry. And then uh, politics intervened in 2016 being an election year. <laughs> um, there was a lot of negative coverage of the industry. And that in particular hurt several investors um, who were invested in Valiant Pharmaceuticals, which is a, a company that has lost a lot of its market cap. Sure. Over the summer, uh, the market started to pick up and, and after the election actually rallied uh, pretty significantly. Mm-hmm. And that really carried activists through. Um, in many cases, turned you know, flat years into double-digit uh, performance years, uh, halved <laughs> some activists' losses, um, and really kind of made activism a hot strategy again. And the indication is that's carried into 2017, mm-hmm. and activist funds are among the better-performing hedge funds at a time when hedge funds are under a lot of pressure from investors. Sure. And, and you touched a, a little bit on, on, on politics in, in that answer. And obviously, you know, in the last 12 months, we've seen some pretty significant political events, <laughs> most notably, obviously, Brexit and, and uh, Donald Trump's election. Uh, so, you know, what was the outlook heading into 2017? And how has that changed in, in, in North America since uh, Trump's inauguration? Um, so in North America... Trump's election has has created a big rally in the markets. Mm-hmm. Um, many observers had already thought the markets were quite overvalued or, or rightly valued. Carl Icahn, who's a notable activist and advisor to Trump, lost huge amounts of money last year by betting against the markets. Mm-hmm. I think it was a hundred and thirty or hundred and forty percent short. Um, so <laughs> that there's a lot of optimism that tax reform, you know, repatriation of overseas capital, um, you know, deregulation uh, can help you know, spur some of these uh, industries that activists have been piling into recently to new and greater heights. Financial industry is one. Uh, technology, I think, is also one where activists are hoping for you know, more uh, kind of consolidation opportunities. Mm-hmm. So the, the outlook for North America or for the U.S. at least is pretty high, despite oil not picking up, and uh, the energy sector is a one where activists have been very busy in previous years. So, mm-hmm. um, with regards to Brexit, I mean the 
the immediate impact of that was to cause a drop in the price of sterling, which made Europe, European and particularly UK stocks attractive to American investors. And sure. you saw a few activists getting into positions after that. You also saw a number of deals that had been pre-announced uh, suddenly change fundamentally to investors on different sides of them. And so you had activists getting into the combinations like SAB Miller in, uh, uh, and uh, arguing for changes to the terms of the deal. So mm-hmm. there's, um, everything has an impact <laughs> sure. and uh, everything is something that an activist could potentially capitalize on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that, you know, particularly here in the US, there's been a, a kind of a rising tide and, and sort of growing enthusiasm under Trump and, and, you know, the markets have performed particularly well. Uh, you know, you and I were recently at an event where Jeffrey Oven, CEO of Value at Capital, was talking about how he's disinvesting from the market and how it's, it's, it's harder to find value when the economy is performing this way. Do you think that's something we will see more of this year? Do you think other people will sort of fall in line with, with that, that perspective? I think um, I think it will be different for different groups of activists. Sure. I think some of the some of the ones with longer term, and more patient capital will will be prepared to ride out a difficult period in the markets and may uh, back away from investing. Uh, others, uh, Carl Icahn has you know uh, effectively dismissed some of his investment team and recruited someone specialised in biotech to mm-hmm. shift their focus a little bit. Um, others are under pressure to perform. If you're a new activist fund, you still want the momentum you know, sure. to generate some of these uh, inflows. So uh, I think a lot of activists are still going to want to be very busy in 2017 and beyond. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's a luxury to be able to sit out the current market if you're a hedge fund. And part two of the series is now up on IRTV. Check it out on our website and YouTube. For a book launch, it was a heck of an event. A special market open ceremony at the London Stock Exchange last month drew serious financial glitterati. Principles for Responsible Investment Chair Martin Stanke explains the big deal about the publication of Revealing the Full Picture, the LSE's new ESG reporting guidance. It's important because investors are looking for good, high-quality, comparable information about environmental social governance factors that they can use in their investments. And so when stock exchanges have a guidance that provides for more uniform disclosure of these issues, it's easier for investors to put it to practical use. They used to mock so-called green investment, but that was then. In a flash, ESG information, environmental, social and governance – has moved from the fringe to the core of investment analysis. Today, about a third of the world's professionally managed assets now include ESG approaches. The problem is, nobody knows what they're doing. And that, in part, is because there's a massive shortfall in quality and consistency in the many ways companies report their progress against ESG criteria. Speaking at the launch event, James Bevan, Chief Investment Officer at CCLA, one of the UK's largest charity fund managers, welcomed the guidance. The real strength of this initiative about getting common standards is about a great big wake-up call to the global industrial participants 
that we must know what is going on. And if we do not know, we cannot make knowledge-based decisions and therefore we cannot discharge our responsibility to our investors. Now, you might think you're doing pretty good at ESG disclosure. Fact is, you probably aren't. The guide quotes a study that finds about 4 in 10 CEOs believe they can accurately quantify the business value of sustainable initiatives. Yet only 7% of investors agree. I often say the, 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 the kind of disclosure we see is, is the best it's ever been, uh, but it's still not very good. Tony Campos is an expert in incorporating ESG factors into investment products and processes. I actually work uh, for FTSE Russell. FTSE Russell is an index and data provider, um, and I'm a, a director in our product group uh, focused on ESG and sustainability data and benchmark. From a commercial point of view, we sell data, benchmarks, and analytical tools to investors, buy-side asset owners, consultants, sell-side, um, specific to sustainability issues. From a practical point of view, we actually have to therefore interact with thousands of companies worldwide, um, very often through the investor relations department um, as a way to, to gather the kind of information that we're looking for. Campos also works closely with FTSE Russell's asset manager and owner clients, which gives him unique perspective on the growing gap between investor demand for quality targeted content on ESG issues and what companies offer them. He says the guide, at a weighty 118 pages, is food for better thought. And the idea here, you know, really is just to, you know, help issuers gain a better and clearer understanding of what investors are looking for with respect to ESG information. Probably most corporate practitioners who engage on this agenda might feel even a little bit overwhelmed by the volume of inbound queries that might come across their desk. And what I think the guidelines are seeking to do is to provide a little bit of clarity and a, and a bit of a strategic thinking process and framework through to the corporate community around what issues are relevant for the investment community. They don't need a sort of reams and reams of information that isn't useful to them. They want specific types of data and, and provide it in a specific kind of way. And th- that's what some of the, the guidelines try and reinforce. One specific thing investors say they need is investment quality data. You know, and it's something that we had a lot of experience with from a FTSE Russell point of view. Um, you know, we are a data business and we're used to working with investors who, who demand a certain level of investment-grade data um, and getting ESG disclosure up to that standard um, will be, a, will be an, an evolution that we're still in the middle of. The report highlights seven key ingredients for investment-grade data. One is accuracy. Another is, is, is boundaries. So these are kind of things that, you know, are, you know, perhaps a bit more mundane. But if you think about sort of traditional investment metrics that are provided in, you know, 10K filings or whatever, whatever might be the, the, the regulatory form required in a given market, you know, this is the kind of stuff that, that is just naturally built in, you know, tying a, spe- a specific data point to a specific fiscal year. Just kind of comes naturally to most financial metrics. But if you look at ESG disclosure, it's not always clear. If you read a company's sustainability report, you know, one section might talk about a particular set of operations in one fiscal year and another narrative section might, might refer to something completely different or at least not make it clear. So accuracy and boundaries are important. Comparability and consistency is really crucial. And issues related to comparability and consistency are prevalent, both in quantitative data that we try and analyze and qualitative. 
Campos points to greenhouse gas emissions. Which lends itself to quantitative output and measurement. Maybe they're reporting for, you know, all of their operations globally, and then the next year they're reporting for, you know, the 75 largest or or the, the operations that account for most of their emissions rather than all of it. And there's probably very valid reasons around why those sort of things change. But the point is, without without that kind of comparability, it's, it, it's hard for investors to do the kind of work and analysis that they need to do, which is also why we've suggested providing raw as well as normalized data to allow investors to, to come up with their own normalizations. Once you're past the understandable, you're left with the believable. For that, Campos notes some firms have begun to voluntarily provide independent assurance of their CSR reporting. So you're, you're starting to see something there around external assurance. But that's, again, just to give the market uh, a little bit more sense of credibility and, 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 and strength of the robustness behind the process that delivered the data that's being consumed by the market. And finally, balance. This is maybe one way to, to provide that assurance without having a third-party audit. If companies are able to provide a kind of objective view that gives a sense of favorable and unfavorable information from a sort of holistic perspective that might give, you know, the investor consumer of the information a better sense that there's some credibility and strength in what's being reported rather than than sort of one-sided glossy stories. The guide calls it the green subsegment level. And for some companies, it's an untapped gold mine. The fact is, more and more investors want better data about issuers' exposure to green products and environmental solutions. In other words, it's great to show you're green, but lots of investors want to know how much you earn from being green. So there's a lot of talk around, particularly in the investor community, the transition to a low-carbon economy and what does that mean from a sort of wider, sort of macro-industrial point of view. And a lot of investors that we're having discussions with from the CIO office on down are trying to understand what does that mean from a risk management point of view? Who are the companies who are not only sort of positioned to potentially be punished uh, as a result of their operational sort of, let's call it carbon footprints or environmental impact? Who are the companies who are actually going to make money, have the potential to benefit from selling uh, goods, products, and services that will help enable the transition to a low-carbon economy. This is not just solar panels and wind turbines, but water technology, waste and pollution control, energy efficiency, clean transportation, all sorts of things. And we're finding that most of the companies who are engaged in those activities you know, are typically not disclosing their businesses. So we can find the fact that they're involved in these things. We can even find the products that they're selling. But we don't have a clear understanding from an investment point of view of, of sort of what's the, what's the revenue driver, what's the rate of growth in revenue from these kinds of products. Um, and there's a number of investors, including very large asset owners, who are wanting to reward companies who are selling those green goods, products, and services. Um, and they just don't have the ability to size up the level of uh, engagement, for lack of a better word, from, from the corporate point of view. So... You know, FTSE Russell is trying to provide the tools to classify and identify this involvement. And what we're lacking is the disclosure from the corporates around the level of involvement from a revenue point of view. This is a point we make in the guidance. And that's a good example of the kind of disconnect between what investors are looking for and, and, and looking for in an attempt to try and reward and seek opportunities in the market related to what they think is a long-term uh, macro-industrial and economic theme, the transition to a low-carbon economy, and the amount of disclosure from the corporates 
is proving problematic to implement those kind of investment strategies. With today's executive order, I'm directing the EPA to take action, paving the way for the elimination of this very destructive and horrible rule. Despite the shift in U.S. priorities, Campos predicts institutional and private sector forces will continue to drive global shifts in green investment, especially decarbonization strategies. Over the long term, the transition to a low-carbon economy as an industrial issue overall and the incorporation of ESG issues in particular for investors is not something that any one sort of political figure or um, administration will be able to uh, fully sort of divert Uh, because investors are dead set on making it part of their um, investment analysis, because it does represent real risk and real opportunity. You'll find the LSE's complete guide to modern ESG reporting on its website. And that's all for this week's Ticker Podcast. Join us online again this coming Tuesday, March 28th. Algorithms, big data, predictive analytics... The latest in IR Magazine's popular webinar series will get you up to speed on how technology is transforming investor relations. It's live at 11 a.m. Eastern. Thanks for listening. In Montreal, I'm Jeff Cassette. You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app. It's a horrible, horrible rule.